gospel, gospel, uh, lots of things to say still. I was just thinking this morning that God is so much into the smallest of details in everything. The grass, you look at the birds, the different colors and how he shapes them. And Ella and I were talking about, uh, we were looking at this picture of a bird, just how the colors were so nicely done and they just they slowly shading out from one color into another perfectly without a paintbrush. <laughs> so it's incredible. And that attention to detail is also with the matter of the gospel. That's why it took these many pages to communicate the truth of Christ. So every line is important to the level that he would have us to understand things. It's building up the same testimony so that you have a much clearer picture of what his arguments are. Essentially, God is making an argument. Uh, he's making an argument about himself. Actually, ultimately, he's making an argument about himself, period. <laughs> He is making an argument about himself that he alone is God. And he alone is holy and is righteous. And if there should be anything coming to any of his creation by way of blessing, it has to be by him doing it. And I don't think God is so much concerned with the temporary life as the Bible says, with him, a thousand, a thousand years is like a day. So you and I, a thousand years would feel like a million years. <laughs> Sister Kelly, imagine having another 900-something years to pull. <laughs> yeah, that's like a long time. So I, I don't think it's so much concerned about time, the way that we look at it but more with eternal things. Good morning, Tanaka. I thought you'd gone to work. You're unemployed? We'll who, who get you employed <laughs> here, helping with the dishes. <laughs> so that perspective is very critical to how you look at the gospel and yourself, because sometimes we end up beating ourselves too much by our missteps in the temporal which God is not really concerned about. His biggest concern with you and me, he has already settled. And that's basically the declaration of the gospel that whatever issues that we may have had with him, he has already corrected it and corrected it in a way that satisfies him. And our burden is to convince you that it is satisfied <laughs> over and over and over. But naturally, that's not how we think. We want to earn our keep. We want to earn eternal things, which even if God were to say, this is a mortgage for the next 20 million years, you could never pay it. We already are struggling with our own mortgages that are 
15 years, 20, 30 years, I'm going to refinance and refinance and <laughs> refinance. Well, there's no refinancing when it comes to salvation. <laughs> it's already done. Okay, so we have a wonderful message, and you see the way that we present the gospel. I like things that make sense, because I think the gospel makes sense, and I like things that are consistent also. I don't want you to listen to one message today that sounds like you agree with it, then the next message is something different, and then the following message, that cannot be the correct way. And it's a problem that I see with a lot of preachers, that they are not consistent, and they're not being consistent because they're not thinking through the fundamentals of the gospel. For me, this is how I reason. If salvation is by grace, it doesn't matter what passage of scripture or what book, I would never interpret it to mean something different. Okay, all right. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this day that you have made and allowed us to see. Even more importantly, we thank you for the day of Christ the coming of Christ, the new creation in Christ, and the day that we shall behold him with our own eyes when our faith shall become sight. We thank you for all whom you have joined to Christ. We have been given the testimony of the Holy Spirit concerning the Son of God and his work in their salvation. We pray for everyone who is going to be listening to this message here and later. May you be with them. May you speak to them. We pray all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, <clears throat> good morning, one and all. We are in Romans 8 this morning. We are back to Romans 8, verse 12 to 17. Romans 8. Best cough to 17. I hope you can hear me nice and loud and clear. <laughs> We've come to do what we love to do, and that is talk about Jesus. Romans 8, 12 to 17, the apostle recorded and said, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And that's the word of the Lord. 
for title, we only have one as and joint as with Christ. As and joint as with Christ. The gospel that we have been hearing that God has recorded for us is the declaration that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel is a declaration of the news that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And those in Christ are not those who chose Jesus. It's not those who invited Jesus or those who were baptized as the condition to enter into Christ that they may have their condemnation removed. That is how it is taught, but it is not correct. Condemnation is a much bigger thing and cannot be removed by a condition that is met by the doing of a sinner of any kind. Even if that doing is caused by God in the sinner. Our non-condemnation is only because of Christ. Being in Christ. And that by election, according to grace, which means by unconditional election. Being in, in Christ by election, according to grace, and being redeemed by the blood of the cross. And you can see why people hate election, but you cannot talk about the gospel without election. It is part and parcel of the development of the story of our salvation. It is a necessary ingredient to our partaking of God's grace and inheritance in Christ. People do not like the fact that they don't choose salvation and cannot choose salvation. The problem is we were not even registered voters <laughs> when it comes to the matter of our election. We were not registered voters. We were not invited to vote. And if you talk to anybody who hates election, even though they do election in a lot of things in life, they hate the fact that God's election, according to grace, they're not opposed to election as a principle. They're opposed to election that is according to grace, that does not consider anything that a person does. They do not like that. They want a conditional 
election. But the true election is unconditional and it takes away whatever sense of power and control a person may have thought they had. It takes away the power of control and people don't want to feel like they have lost control of things, especially of something of the stature of salvation. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, a sinner naturally cannot choose righteousness. Righteousness as it is in Christ. Thus, if we should be saved, and if we should be in Christ, it's only because God chose us. That's the only way. But those for whom this sentence of condemnation has been lifted are they whom God calls those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And in this section of the argument, walking by the spirit cannot be speaking to a person's walk of righteousness because that would defeat the argument that is being made by Paul, the argument that he has made already about us being sinners and the argument that he's going to make in Romans 9 about election according to grace, again, giving the example of Jacob and Esau. God cannot save anyone because of their walk. Because none walks rightly. A sinner like you and me needs to be justified in Christ and freely because our walk is wobbly. <laughs> it is an unrighteous walk by nature. That's what we do. We have a wobbly walk to us. So walking by the Spirit is testimony of those who have been born of God, those who walk, that is, who order their steps, those who order their steps according to the faith of Christ Jesus. It is those who have nothing to boast about of themselves in terms of righteousness before God. But then Paul says that those, there's a group of those who walk according to the flesh. These are they who are still laboring under the law's condemnation. They have not been made to die to sin and to the law and its condemnation. And the reason being, God did not put them in Christ. He did not unite them to Christ and his death, and thus they did not die to the things that the death of Christ alone could separate them from. They have not died to sin and its condemnation. They have not died to the law and its condemnation. And so they continue to seek, 
life and righteousness by their own obedience to the law or any obedience of any kind for that matter. These are they who walk according to the flesh. They think they can establish a good relationship with God based on something that they do. And we observe that everything else equal, those who walk according to the flesh may actually be more moral than those who walk according to the spirit. Those who walk according to the flesh may actually be more moral people. And the larger point being that one is not justified because they walk according to the spirit. In other words, their walking is not the reason why God has justified them. They've been justified in spite of their walking. And this is a very important distinction lest we wrestle the understanding away from Paul's arguments. A sinner is only justified one way, by being in Christ and Christ dying for them. And this is what salvation by grace means, and all these things have already happened. These things have already been done, so we are only declaring them as finished. And it's very important to understand that as Paul is working all this teaching, he is presenting two, category, two categories of things. Salvation by law-keeping versus salvation by God's grace, as it has been revealed in Christ. And he is working those categories and explaining why a sinner has no hope in the law whatsoever, but only in Christ. This is a matter that people do not understand about the law. And the Holy Spirit says, the law was made weak because of the sinful flesh. In other words, the law cannot help one who is born a sinner. And unfortunately, all of us were born sinners. <laughs> the law has no power to lift them out of their misery. When the law comes to a sinner, it does not give them a lifeline. It does not draw them out of the mire. What does the law do? It gets a shovel and gets the heaviest stones to bury the person. That's what the law does. The law does not roll away the stone from your tomb. Christ alone rolls away the stone from your tomb. Moses puts the stone, because that's what he was given to do. The law was given to roll the stone over your tomb to seal your condemnation. Christ alone comes, and he gives life, and he rolls the stone away. So law and sin produce death. Everyone who has died has died because of this relationship. This is the underlying principle behind sickness and death. 
It's because of that relationship of sin and law. Only the Lord Jesus was accepted from this relationship because he was never a sinner. So that is the weakness of the law. And if one, if one who is born a sinner, if one who is born a sinner must be made alive to God, there must be a different way. There must be a different way. And that way is what God has revealed in the appearance of Christ Jesus. That's what God was teaching in the death and resurrection of Lazarus, that if Lazarus should be made alive, even in his physical flesh, someone of the stature of Christ Jesus had to come and speak and to command the law, the tablets of stone to be removed, to be rolled away from his tomb. So what the law could not do for a sinner, that is to make them holy and righteous, the apostle says God did. But how did God do it? By sending his own son made in the likeness of sinful flesh. So God already knew what the law could not do. God already knew what the law could not do. He never gave it to give life to anyone. What the law could not do, God did. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, which means without sin, and not being beset by sin, he was able to give the law what it demanded, not of him, but of those that were in him. And if Jesus was meant to save everyone, then everyone was saved. If that was God's intention to save every person who ever lived, then Jesus saved them. Because when he came, he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law and whatever else God required of salvation. But we know this. We know that Jesus did not save everyone. He made a distinction between the wheat and the tares, the goats and the sheep. And he said, you are not of my sheep. Because my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And that means when Jesus died, he only met the righteous requirement of the law for some people, those chosen in him who are called the us in Romans 8 verse 4, that is those who walk according to the spirit. Now, there's a distinction between those who are justified and those who are in condemnation. God says, those who walk in the spirit mind the things of the spirit. This is their thinking. This is their mind that God has given them. God causes them to mind of certain things that the average person does not. They set their minds on the things 
of the above things that the Holy Spirit testifies of. The Holy Spirit testifies of the things of Christ. And this is why it is important to be careful of attributing things to the Holy Spirit that are not related to the gospel. The Holy Spirit this, the Holy Spirit that, and in much of that, there's not anything of Christ Jesus. But those who walk according to the flesh, they set, they fix their minds on things of the flesh. The things of the flesh is a big heading with a lot of subcategories. But if you were to join the Facebook group or WhatsApp group, it will say things of the flesh. And they have all kinds of words in there. But this is the theological understanding. Fundamentally, things of the flesh respect those that have no interest in and are ignorant of the righteousness that has been revealed in the gospel. It is not speaking of watching some horror movies or anything that people may deem improper. That's not the conversation. That is not the most identifying marker of this group. It is that they have not submitted or are ignorant of the righteousness of the gospel. And in the immediate context of Paul's discussion, the flesh goes hand in hand with seeking justification through the law. And Paul is tying the law to the working of fleshly things as what gives power to the working of sin and the fleshly mind and the behavior that will follow with it. So those are the distinctions that Paul is pushing. The flesh or the fleshly mind is the mind that still has not graduated from the understanding of what the law actually means. They are still fixated to the law. And Paul said this is to be carnally minded, and the result of that is death. And death here is not just death. It implies condemnation. There are only two categories of existence. There are only two categories of existence. It is life or death. Justified or condemned. And there's none who is in a neutral position, especially after the cross, there's no neutral position. Yeah, in either one of those categories. And the cross of Christ is the dividing line between life and death. It is the dividing line between the old creation of Adam and its inherent issues and the new creation in Christ, as we have noted in the previous messages, saying this is the reason why Christ was crucified in between the two thieves 
to preach the reality of this truth, that Christ alone is the divider. He is the mediator between life and death. Christ is the divider of justification and condemnation. Only he can separate condemnation from justification. So it was not by accident that Jesus was crucified in the middle. Because to the one thief he gave life, that is justification, to the other thief, condemnation. Because all judgment has been given him by the Father to give life to as many as have been given him. So when a person still tries to draw you back to the law, they're drawing you back to the condemnation of the law. They may come as pious, as righteous, but it's foolishness. <laughs> it's foolishness. Let's go to Romans 8, verse 7. Romans 8, verse 7, Paul says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. The carnal mind is the mind in which Christ is absent. It is the natural mind of all men and women apart from Christ and the Holy Spirit. It is the mind inherited from Adam. This is the factory setting of all who are born in Adam. And it is a mind that is in enmity against God. It is opposed to God naturally as it is. And Paul says, because it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. Everyone who is born with a carnal mind, everyone is born, I meant to say, I did not say that correctly. Everyone is born with a carnal mind until God gives them spiritual life in Christ. But not all are given a new birth because not all are born again. But Paul says something about the law of God in this verse. And I was thinking about it and I revisited the understanding because I don't think it is as obvious as people think it is. Paul in Romans 8 introduced us to two laws or principles in verse 8 of Romans, in verse 2 of Romans 8, where he said, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Two laws, two principles. And then he said in verse 7, one who is carnally minded is not subject to the law of God. And that means those who walk in the flesh are not subject to the law of God. As in actually doing the law. 
But what is the proper understanding of that? Is that saying those who walk according to the Spirit are also doing the law now? (laughs) I do not think so. Especially if everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul said that in Romans 3. Everyone has sinned. So I think then that Paul is saying something different by saying the law of God. I don't think this is in reference to Mount Sinai, to Moses. I believe Paul is saying the carnal mind, the unconverted mind, is not subject to God's claims in the gospel. The mind that is unconverted does not care for Jesus. That's what that is saying. It does not care for the gospel. But in the gospel is the law of life. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The law here that is in reference by Paul, I believe, is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And he is saying those who pursue the law for righteousness cannot be subject to the gospel claims. They cannot. You tell them the gospel over and over and tell them that Christ alone is enough. They will come and still try to draw you away from Christ as the Judaizers were doing and causing the early church a lot of trouble. So in 1 Corinthians 2.14, hear this. 1 Corinthians 2.14. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the natural man, you can say, but the carnal mind does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. What are the spiritual things of God? What are the things of the Spirit of God? The things that Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians is the gospel that people were calling what? Foolishness by their own wisdom. And God says, well, the gospel is the power and also is the wisdom of God unto salvation. So the natural man is the one with the carnal mind. They do not and cannot submit to the righteousness of God as has been revealed in the gospel. They do not submit to it. They can never say Christ and put a period. It's always Christ plus something. They have to draw you to something else. And I'll also get my supporting evidence from Romans 10. Let's go to Romans 10. Romans 10, verse 1 to 4.
Romans 10, 1 to 4, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. This is the defining character of those who are carnally minded, even though they may be in the church, even though they may be religious, they have a zeal for God. But it is not according to knowledge. It is not in line with the truth. They are the ones who come and say, the law is the rule of life for the redeemed. But what is wrong with their zeal? Paul's problem is not their zeal. Paul's problem is that they are ignorant of God's righteousness. (laughs) They are ignorant of God's righteousness. But they do not stop there. They just do not stop at their ignorance. In their zeal, they go a step further and seek to establish their own righteousness. Why? Because they have not submitted to the righteousness of God in Christ as being enough and the only condition of their salvation. They have not submitted. To them, Christ is an enabler of salvation. But you still have to do some things. You still have to go back to the law. You have to do some things. You have to... They have not submitted to the righteousness. And they establish their own righteousness. And they show that they are ignorant and have not submitted to by using their zeal for God. But it is zeal in false piety. So be careful of people who are zealous for God. You still want to hear what they're saying. Hear what they're saying. Ask them about the righteousness of God. (laughs) Because they use their false piety to trip up people who have believed the truth, and they will cause you to lose your assurance because they will turn you from the righteousness of God to navel-gazing. Yeah? They won't let go of the law of sin and death. But what is their problem? What are they not understanding? Verse 4 of Romans 10, Paul says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end. Christ is the end. He is the purpose. He is the fulfillment of everything that the law was saying. The law finds its fulfillment. It finds its satisfaction. It finds its rest. In Christ. And the carnal mind does not know this and will not receive God's testimony of both the law and Christ. 
they do not receive the testimony that the law ultimately dead ended in Christ. They think it's an anti-law idea. So they'll call you an antinomian. But the law knows the truth because the law is of the truth. It has been fulfilled and all its requirements satisfied for all the elect in Christ Jesus. Thus, it must be removed from the center stage. The law must be removed from the center stage because something better has been introduced. A better hope has been given us, as the writer of Hebrews says, a better hope has been introduced to us. Thus, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Not by religious duties. God is not pleased by religious duties because they do not have faith that rests in the sufficiency of the righteousness of God in Christ. Also, the law is not of faith. A lot of people think that we're just making it up. <laughs> It is actually in the Bible. It is it's Galatians 3, verse 12. The law is not of faith. Galatians 3, 12, Paul says, but the law is not based on faith, but the one who does the works of the law will live by them So if you're looking at that verse carefully, it is making a distinction. That if something is of faith, you don't do anything. And if, on the other hand, something is of the law, you must keep doing and giving what the law says. And by that definition of Galatians 3.12, God is saying, anyone who talks law is faithless and are required by the nature of the law to seek life and justification not from Christ or God's grace, but from their own perfect obedience to whatever the law says to be done. So those who claim to be perfected by the law in any way cannot please God in justification or in sanctification because without faith it is impossible to please God so law and faith do not go in the same category. That's what Paul is saying. Law and faith do not go in the same category. Romans 8 verse 9. But you are not in the flesh but in the spirit. Or you could rephrase that and say, but you are not under the law but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, 
Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And so this verse 9 of Romans 8 does support my interpretation of walking by the Spirit and what it means. And I'll say this again. I said walking by the Spirit and walking according to the flesh are not moral definitions. They're not moral categories that are driving distinctions in the matter of justification. It says this, that is Romans 8, 9, making a distinction between the flesh and the spirit. It says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You are not under condemnation. How? Define for us what the difference is. And here is how he defined it. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So the indwelling of the Spirit is what describes and identifies and separates makes distinction of the group or the category of those who walk according to the spirit from those who walk according to the flesh. The difference is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So the one who is indwelled by the spirit, by definition, is he or she who walks according to the spirit. That's clear. And All who are in Christ will at one point or another, as God has determined, to give them the Holy Spirit, they will come and walk in the Spirit. Because they were ordained to walk in the Spirit, because they shall all be possessed of God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given by God as a claim of possession as a seal and down payment of all the redeemed. The Holy Spirit is given by God to claim possession of a person, that this person belongs to Christ. So if Christ is in you, Paul says the body is dead because of sin. These bodies of ours are dead, and yet shall also experience physical death because of sin. But that is not the end of the story for those who have the Spirit of God. The same bodies that have died, they legally died in union with the death of Christ. We died with Christ. But Paul says, The spirit is alive because of righteousness. And that is to say the redeemed are alive to God. They are alive to God because they are not under condemnation. That is why Jesus said, "Let let the dead bury the dead. Let the dead bury their own dead. But how can the dead bury the dead? (laughs) 
Because Jesus was mixing both physical and spiritual realities to those who are not of God. To say the dead spiritually are just as the dead physically. They're just as dead as those whom they are burying by reason of not having the life of God in Christ. Anybody who does not have the life of God in Christ is dead spiritually and shall die physically. But those who are in Christ are alive to God. They are in Christ and Christ is in them. They have been united to the Father. Both Jesus said that to the disciples, that when he has gotten back to the Father, him and the Father will come and indwell his people, but also he would send the Holy Spirit. So we have been united to the life of God because God dwells in us. And also we have been united to the life of the resurrected Christ. Christ, or God, has imputed us with Christ's righteousness, which things are not true for those who remain under the flesh, those who remain under Adam, the law, sin, death, and condemnation. So you see that when you are working the understanding at this level, there's no room to say, oh, if so-and-so has been divorced, then they are not in Christ. It's foolishness. Christ died for sinners. <laughs> he died to save his people who are sinners from their sin. And now this is what God also means by the giving of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 verse 11 Romans 8, verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And that is saying, the spirit of God who dwells in you is God's guarantee of your resurrection. Pay attention to what God is saying. God is saying, this is a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given as a seal. When you put a seal on something in this particular context, it means you belong to Christ. And he proves that by the giving of the Holy Spirit. You cannot be unsealed once you have been given the Holy Spirit by Christ. So the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. He is the guarantee of your resurrection. And Paul says, as Jesus was raised from the dead by God and his spirit, the same spirit will also raise from the dead those whom he indwells. So we see the progression of the matter of our salvation. 
the Father's work of putting us in Christ and declaring us as righteous and Christ redeeming us. Yeah? Then after the giving of the Holy Spirit to all who were redeemed to mark God's possession of them and then the resurrection in power of the mortal bodies of the redeemed. I made a statement last week where I said the giving of the Holy Spirit is not for your justification. The Holy Spirit is not given to justify a sinner. In other words, you are not justified at the giving of the Holy Spirit. You are justified at the payment of what you owed. That's where your debt was cleared. The Holy Spirit is not for our justification. He is given to testify of our justification. So in the matter of the resurrection, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in all matters of the salvation of the sinner, but at different stages. God raised Christ from the dead in the matter of the resurrection. And yet the Bible says Christ raised himself from the dead. Jesus said, I have this commandment from the Father to put my life down and to take it back up. And no one takes my life away from me. So Christ raised himself from the dead, and yet the Holy Spirit is said to have raised Christ from the dead. And in the matter of our resurrection, God the Father will also raise us from the dead. As Jesus said, he would raise us from the dead. Here Jesus speaking in John 5, 25 to 29. Jesus said, truly, truly, John 5, 25 to 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. How do the dead hear? <laughs> but, but they will hear the voice of the Son of God. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Those who are in Christ will experience two resurrections. Resurrection from the deadness of their sin and depravity as they are born again to the spiritual life in Christ 
they hear the voice of the Son of God and they come to life. They come to the knowledge and truth of Christ, to faith and repentance in Christ. That's why Jesus said, a time is coming and now is, so the is, the now time, and the time to come. In the now time, those who belong to Christ will hear his voice and come to spiritual life. But there's also going to be the time that the very same people will be resurrected from the physical death. And in that resurrection, also there will be two resurrections. A resurrection of life of those who did the good deeds or who did the good and those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. Now, the question is, what is the doing of the good? Was Jesus talking about salvation by works? No. The doing of the good is for those who are in Christ. Christ is their good. He is the one who did the good for them. And those who committed the evil, the committing of the evil are not necessarily bad things that they did. It was the rejection of Christ. Because anything that is not Christ is evil. Resurrection to life is the resurrection of those who walk according to the Spirit. These are they who did the good. And their good is not because of them. It is the good that God has imputed to them from Christ. And the resurrection of judgment is for those who are of the flesh, of Hagar, of Ishmael. The redeemed shall not come to the resurrection of judgment. Pay attention to that. Jesus made a distinction. A resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. They are different resurrections. Only those who are of the flesh are they who come to a resurrection of judgment. And to the resurrection by the Lord Jesus, to our resurrection by the Lord Jesus, Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21 say this. Let's go to Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies or our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself Essentially saying, Jesus will transform our lowly bodies by his omnipotent power. Transform them. 
and conform our bodies to his glorious body. So the point that I'm driving at is that salvation is a Trinitarian work that is centered on the Son. Salvation is a Trinitarian work that is centered on the Son. The Godhead is Christocentric. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are united in this work, but Christ is the central figure who mediates the presence of God. That is why you see him in creation, in redemption, and in the hoarding of all things in him. And he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So he is the revealer of God. So the Father resurrects to glorification. And the Son does the same thing. And so does the Holy Spirit. And there are no self-esteem issues <laughs> in the Godhead that need for God to visit Dr. Phil, Deepak Chopra and Oprah. <laughs> That's the crew, right? They are supposed to be the gurus on how well to deal with people's self-esteem issues. <laughs> and in that, they show that they are walking according to the flesh. They deny the testimony of Christ. Romans 8, verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. They justified in the light of their standing before God are debtors, not to the flesh, not to the law. That's what he's saying. They do not owe the law anything. They are not debtors to the flesh. Because remember, the law and the flesh, they go together. So if you owe one, you owe everyone in that group. If you owe Ishmael a PlayStation, you owe his mom, Hagar. You owe Mount Sinai. You owe Adam. We are not debtors to the flesh. To live according to the flesh and all that it entails. Because our justification makes us debtors to grace. We are debtors to God. To be different because of that. The brethren are not debtors to the law. We have to hammer this. We are not debtors to the law because the law gave us nothing. But to God's grace. But you never owe grace as to pay anything to grace because it is grace. Grace. 
But because we are dead as to grace, we are given an exhortation that flows from our already established standing before God. And this is the flow of arguments. And if our connection of the arguments is bad, we end up with a false gospel. This is what Paul has said. Paul has said we are justified. No condemnation in Christ. And the justified are they who now walk according to the Spirit. And walking by the Spirit brings a certain knowledge, understanding, and power of doing things. Because the Holy Spirit indwells the redeemed. And so he says this, verse 18. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's a statement of fact. If you live according to the law, you will die. <laughs> you will be condemned. But if the spirit, but if by the spirit you put to death And the literal translation there of put to death is putting to death, which is present tense. Putting to death, almost present continuous tense. Putting to death the deeds of the body you live. How do you put the deeds of the body to death? It's only by the gospel, it's only by Christ. So living under the flesh is living under the motivations of the sinful passions that are aroused by the law to establish your own righteousness by it. When people talk, are talking law, all they're doing is they're trying to establish some acceptable righteousness by their obedience to it. But the law arouses and energizes the sinful passions to bring death as its payout, as its wages. Paul discussed that in Romans 7. But for the redeemed, if they should die because of some sin, that arose by living by the flesh, which we do to some degree or another, their death is not condemnation. Their death is not condemnation. If someone who is redeemed, I saw when Ravi Zacharias, I guess that was his name when he died. He had some scandals that came afterwards about his shenanigans. And people were condemning him because of the shenanigans and saying he could not have been a Christian. I'm not making a judgment of his justification or condemnation. That's not my place. I'm just using that as an example. 
where people will make an eternal determination of someone based on something that they disapprove of or something that they think they have not done. And say, see, he died because of that sin, therefore he is condemned. You cannot make a straight line. Conclusion of that. God is speaking to us as his redeemed people and giving a positive exhortation to continue in Christ and saying it is more profitable to remain in Christ, to remain with the things that the Spirit is testifying of, and even to how we govern our own sinful body. The only way you can properly govern it is by the knowledge of the gospel. That's the only way you can put to death anything. Because anything that comes in contact with Christ will be put to death. <laughs> and you will live. You will not suffer some of the ill effects of sin. And if there, in the verse, it says, if you, if is not conditioning your justification on your living. If is not saying putting to death the deeds of the flesh is your justification. Remember where we are in the movement of the arguments as we are going through the text. Putting to death the deeds of the flesh is not what justifies a sinner, but God recommends he exhorts, he commands, he persuades his people, the justified, to be mindful of the things that he says to them who are children. God is speaking to us as children now and say, do not touch that Paul, it's dangerous. Don't do that, it's not good for you. This is what Paul said in the light of our union with the death and resurrection of Christ. Having been freed from sin and its condemnation, Romans 6. Let's go to Romans 6. Eleven to fourteen. Paul has discussed our union with not only Christ, but with his death and resurrection. And what that accomplished for us. And saying we have been freed from sin. And its condemnation. As a matter of truth. This is what God has done for you. We have been freed from sin and its condemnation. And thus, hear this, verse 11, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, understand this reality that came by the death of Christ and your union to him. I always bemoan this. Union with Christ 
is not properly understood and emphasized in the teaching of the gospel as it should be. We are united. We were united to Christ in his death and his resurrection. And God says, reckon yourselves as indeed dead to sin. But how can I reckon myself as indeed dead to sin, knowing who I am and what I'm experiencing? God says, it's not about your experience. It's about union. <laughs> because God already made the transaction in this matter when he united us to the death of his son. So in God's reckoning, you are already dead to the sin that now causes you trouble. You are already dead to that sin. It is nothing on you. Reckon yourself. You are still laboring under the condemnation of a sin, of a debt that was already paid for. But this is not saying you do not sin anymore. It is saying the sin that you now commit was already legally joined to the death of Christ and was taken care of. But that is such an astounding statement, if understood correctly. This is new stuff. It is amazing stuff. And it is like giving someone a credit card with no spending limits <laughs> and giving them like five Amazon trucks to deliver things to their home <laughs> and saying all the debt that you ever incur using this credit card is paid for. It will never be charged to you. Swipe it. <laughs> Swipe it. And the obvious reaction is, we are going to party. We are going to buy everything that money buys. Let us go hog wild. Imagine that. The U.S. government is doing that. It is swiping and swiping and swiping and swiping because they know ultimately that they will never have to pay. They just keep printing. Just cut more trees and print more paper. But God says, that is not the correct understanding. I'm not giving you this credit card to be swiping every single day on everything that you see. Take it easy, be rational, be sensible, be responsible with the card. Do not abuse the freedom that it brings. It is for your own good. Therefore, do not let sin reign. That's verse 12 of Romans 6. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its last. Do not. Yes, your sin 
there's none of your sins that will condemn you. Okay, let me say that again. Because some people don't get this. There's not a single sin, Sister Kelly, that you can commit that will condemn you in Christ. It's impossible. But what will happen is, the more you sin, the more stuff you do and approve, it's only going to hurt your own life, your mortal life here and now. It's just going to make your life uncomfortable. But it cannot dent anything that you have in Christ. And that's what God is saying. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Be sober. Essentially, that's what he's saying. Be sober-minded. Don't go crazy. For sin shall not have dominion. When you've gone to either the mall or the park or the zoo, and you see these rowdy kids, and as a parent, you're looking at them, they are so out of control. The question that you would have always is, whose kids are these? <laughs> whose children are these? Because you're just itching to give someone a beating. And God is saying, yeah, my children, I don't want you to have the testimony that people will be like, whose children are these? That's the point. That's what is happening. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. What does that mean, though? What does it mean to have dominion? It is saying sin shall not have dominion over you to condemn you when you stumble. Sin has no dominion. It has no power over you to condemn. But that's the conversation. Because it has no more power or jurisdiction over you to condemn you. Sin has no jurisdiction. It cannot try you. It lost its jurisdiction. Because sin cannot condemn apart from the law. And the law cannot condemn apart from sin why? How is that possible? Because Christ took care of both sin and law. Christ took care of both of them. So it is Christ, by his own obedience to death, who wrestled away the power of sin to rule and condemn his people. So sin has no power to condemn you. And that has a freeing effect. So the point here, again, is the flow of arguments cause and effect. And when we mess up the cause and effect of salvation, we end up conditioning salvation on things that were given just as exhortations. Things that were given just as commands. And hence, we have the Lordship salvation that leave a lot of people hopeless. Hear this. Let's hear the cause and effect, the indicative, imperative relationship. Colossians, let's go to Colossians 3. Colossians 
Colossians 3, 1 to 17. For those who may be new to the matter of indicative imperative, indicatives are those things that respect your standing before God. This is what God has done for you. This is who you are in Christ. You're chosen, you're justified, you're holy, you're accepted. All your sins were forgiven. That's indicative. It's what God has done for you in your salvation. And what God has done for you alone determines your standing before God. That's indicative. And then there is the imperative. The imperatives are the commands. They are the instructions. They are the exhortations to try and move us to be or to think a particular way so that we may do particular things to give us the motivation. But what you see is that the imperatives are never given just as naked imperatives to say, oh, just go and do this. The New Testament does not teach that. The imperatives are always given grounded on the indicatives. So that's why I was saying it is very important for us to understand this. You could not mess up the gospel if you dealt with the indicatives alone. You are still in the gospel territory. But you can mess up the gospel big time when you work it from the imperatives and try to make obedience to the imperatives the basis or signs of salvation. You end up with a lot of problems. So let's see how God presented this argument in Colossians 3, beginning at verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. If then you were raised with Christ, that's an indicative. It is done, you were raised with Christ. And because of that, the exhortation is, seek those things which are above. Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, that's an indicative, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Nothing is going to change that. Whether you set your mind above or into the ground, that's the reality of things. Verse 2, set your mind on things above not on things on the earth. That's an imperative. That's a command that is flowing from the indicative statement that Christ is raised and seated and is above. Therefore, set your eyes where Christ is. Verse 3. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is an indicative, this is the reality of things. You died in union with the death of Christ, and your life is hidden, is hidden, is hidden with Christ in God. 
Verse 4, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's an indicative. That is what God is going to do. It is unconditional to you and me. When he appears, then that's what is going to happen. Therefore, verse 5. Now you see, therefore, is the exhortation, is the imperatives driven by your understanding and legal relationship to God as has been discussed. Therefore, knowing these things about you, that you died with Christ and that your life is hidden in Christ, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. These are the members that are on the earth. Your mind is in heaven, is looking to the heavenly things, but the members that are on the earth, these are the things that happen with us because of our sinful flesh. It's fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. But the question is, why give this exhortation to those who are walking by the Spirit if they are that righteous. Because those who walk according to the Spirit, they fall into some of these sins. Hence the exhortation. Verse 6. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. But if you're doing the things in verse 5, why are you not also counted among the sons of disobedience. And that tells us that the sons of disobedience are not what people think they are. They are the ones who have not the righteousness of Christ. Because that is the only way the wrath of God will come down upon anyone. That's the only way. So disobedience to God is not, at this point, a moral category, but rather a rejection of God's testimony of Christ Jesus. To not believe in Christ is disobedience to God. It's not a moral category, as many people would want to push it. So Paul says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Essentially to say you used to do this very same thing. There's no difference between you who walk in the spirit and those who do those things who are not saved. You guys do the same thing. Okay, you are kicking it in the same clubs. You are thinking exactly the same way. You are drinking the same beer. Okay, but now, but now because you know the truth, you yourselves are to put off all these, or the list keeps getting bigger. How can the righteous have such a big list? (laughs) Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. You take that out of your mouth, and guess what? 
Verse 9, do not lie to one another because you lie to one another. <laughs> Since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, the old man who has been put off is Adam. Because all these things that Paul mentions is the experience that came to us by Adam. And when Adam, the old man, was taken care of with his sin and condemnation, we put on the new man who is Christ. Christ is the new man, the new creation. Because ultimately, as far as God is concerned, there are only two men that matter. is Adam, the old man, the old creation. In Christ, the new man, the new creation. And Paul is saying the gospel renews our thinking about everything. It gives us a better sense and a good measure and sensitivity to sin but it does not make us sinless. If anything, it awakens us more to our sinfulness. We become aware of who we are, of our weaknesses, our shortcomings in all these departments. Verse 11, where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, that's scandalous given everything that has been said. Indicative statement, elect of God, and this is who we are, holy, we are sanctified and beloved. So this could not have been coming from our good behavior because ultimately this is how God calls us. Elect of God, holy and sanctified and beloved. Even as we battle with those things that have been told us not to do. Right. But it says, look to your election. Look to your Justified state. Look at how God sees you. And because of that, put on tender masses, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. So these are the positive imperatives. The other things were negative. These are the positive things that you are to put on. Put on tender masses. And you can see that these are more in line with the character of Christ himself. Bearing with one another. Bear with one another. Why would you bear with another? Because we are sinners. Be patient with one another. And forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another even as Christ forgave you. So you also 
must do. If there are any issues, complain against, you do not resort to condemn the person using the law. Paul says that's not the correct way to drive behavior change if you want it, if you need it. It's not the law that you use. Our forgiveness is in Christ. So you go to Christ as your basis of exhortation. And those who do not teach this way and are going back to Moses to get cheese and Cheerios <laughs> for the redeemed show the testimony of the mindset that is set on the flesh. They have not understood the arguments. Paul could have easily said, okay, now that you've been forgiven in Christ, let's go back to the law. No, he does not do that. He continues to work everything. And as you continue to read, we still haven't gotten to verse 17, but as you continue to read past verse 17, you're going to see that Paul continues to build the same exhortations to family relations, husbands and wives and children, and he's pushing everything around Christ. Yeah? Verse 14, But above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. See, above all things, if you put on love, you have the mindset and the heart that will solve all these issues for you. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful the peace of God to which you were called. We were called to peace. Let the word of Christ, verse 16, dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is clear teaching. That is how we teach. We do not bring people back to Moses, even though those who do not get it will say, oh, you are antinomians. No, we are not antinomians. We go by how God has revealed we ought to know, to follow, understand. So here's my point again. The exhortations, the imperatives, the commands of the New Testament are driven by the gospel. Because imperatives do not cause the salvation of anyone. The things that Paul said to not do or to do, those do not cause the salvation. They're given to those who are already saved, those who are children, those who are called sons. Romans 8 verse 14 for as many as are led by the Spirit, these are sons of God. Those led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And that means not all who are alive are sons of God. Not all people are the sons of God, even though God created all. The gospel is what defines who are the sons and children and those who are not. And the Holy Spirit is given to make this separation, 
to separate out the sons from those who are not. And the same Holy Spirit is given to attest of one's sonship to God. Verse 15 will be done soon. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. You who walk according to the spirit did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear of judgment due to your sin, due to your poor and lack of performance as those who live under the law. The law is characterized by fear of judgment. That's the distinction there. Because every time you sin, you know you're in trouble. And this fear is constant because you're constantly sinning. <laughs> this fear is perennial. It is unending. And the result of that is bondage. You're going to lose your freedom. Have you ever seen someone who was in bondage, either even in a movie or wherever they've shown them they've been abducted? They come out very fearful. They come out with a very distorted view of things. They come out suffering from post-traumatic disorder. And you cannot recover such a person using the law because that will bring more fear back to them. They need to hear of grace, of love, of assurance. They need to be told that they are safe. And only that we can do using the gospel and not the law. The law does not give a clear conscience because of dead works. That's Hebrews teaching. Because it makes nothing perfect. The law does not perfect a sinner. The law is bondage no matter how people may want to spin it in their spin rooms. <laughs> And this is why Paul said in Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, stand. Resist those who try to put you back under the bondage of the law and not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And that is the law of Moses. It is the yoke of bondage. And then something that is important that we're going to end our message on. The Lord does not make one a child, but a slave. Those are two categories, again, that the Holy Spirit introduces to us in the matter of the distinction between law and grace. The law does not make for a free person. It makes one for bondage who is a slave. And he says, believers are not slaves, but adopted sons. And they are adopted sons because Christ alone is the natural son. We have become sons of God by way of adoption. Ephesians 1, 5. Ephesians 1, 5, we're going to read a couple of verses to this end.
Paul says, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So we were predestinated to adoption of children. We were placed into the relationship of being children by our adoption through Christ. Okay? Galatians 4, beginning at verse 4, and we'll end at verse 7. Galatians 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. And this was the purpose for which he was sent, and the purpose for which he came under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, in other words, to set free them that were under the condemnation and power of the law, for what purpose? That we might receive the adoption of sons. So this was necessary. The redemption was necessary for our adoption as sons. Galatians 6, sorry, Galatians 4, 6 and 7. Galatians 4, 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. See cause and effect again. This is where I really hammer this. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son. So the sending of the spirit is not what causes us to be sons. The spirit is sent because we are sons. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So verses 5 from Ephesians 1 and Galatians 4 and Galatians, Galatians 4, 4 to 6 or to 7. This is how everything is flowing. Predestination set the decree of our adoption. Predestination. We're predestined to the adoption of children. Predestination itself was not the adoption, but it set in motion the movement of Christ towards the adoption. The adoption happened when Jesus came in the fullness of time to sign the adoption papers. You cannot take the child, get the child, even though you have expressed intention and interest in adopting someone, you still have to show up and be vetted for your fitness to be the parent of that child. So Christ must come, and he must come and sign the adoption papers by the way of his blood, okay? And saying he is qualified to be our new parent. So Christ born under the law to redeem so that we may receive the adoption of sons. 
that we may be conferred with the title of son. And the giving of the title and the rights of adoption was conditioned on Christ coming and dying. See that. And this is saying, Paul's point is, adopted sons have the same legal rights and privileges as the natural son, especially in the time and in the context of the time and culture of Paul. But then he is drawing that and saying, this is even more true in the gospel sense. All who are believers, God calls them sons, but he does not give them an empty basket. They are entitled to all the rights and privileges of the one who is the natural son, who is Christ Jesus. Yeah? And, and because we are sons, God sent forth his spirit into the hearts of those that were adopted to God in the death of Christ. And by that spirit, they are caused to cry out to God as their father, a matter that the spirit causes and reveals to the redeemed. Just go on the street and tell someone to say, oh, can you cry out to God the father and see how that happens? It's not going to happen. They're going to be cursing you. It's only those that have the spirit of God who cause God their father. Yeah, that's the point that Paul is also attaching to his teaching. So in Christ, we have been made sons. We are no more slaves. We are no more servants with no inheritance. That's the point. And a slave, though they work so hard, they have no right of inheritance. So under the law, you work incredibly hard, but you remain a servant. You remain a slave with no rights of inheritance in Christ. Yeah, <laughs> that's clear. So the spirit of adoption, the spirit who is sent of God to all the adopted children in Christ, the Holy Spirit does not make us adopted to God, but bears witness of our adoption as God's children. That's the giving and the work of the Holy Spirit. He bears witness that we are the adopted children of God. Verse 16 the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And many say the evidence of salvation is when we stop doing some sins. That is not a very good measure of measuring your salvation. God says it is the Holy Spirit testimony through the conviction of the truth of Christ in the gospel that is the clear testimony of one's sonship, one's salvation. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our own spirit that we are the children of God. Verse 17, and I think that's our last verse. And if children, then heirs, 
heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So that is the conclusion of the matter in respect of that. If we are children and have been made sons, there is a cause and effect that follows from that relationship. We are heirs. In other words, God is not a deadbeat father. He has an inheritance for all his children. And God's inheritance of all things is with the firstborn. The firstborn is Christ. And the firstborn of Christ, not of human origin, but firstborn as of rank, as of preeminence, and all things were given to Christ. That's what Jesus said in John. And we also have been made children and share in the same inheritance that is in Christ. And the inheritance in Christ is salvation and everything that God has put in that basket that has our inheritance. But being united, oh yeah, we're done. That's good. That's like, okay, uh, let me finish this thing. But being united with Christ comes with another package. If we indeed suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. If we have been united in salvation, we also are united in his suffering in our present life, that we may also be glorified together with him. And we'll develop this and more in the next message. I'm not done with what I said today. I'm going to have to revisit again the next message. It develops some more nuggets. But this is what we must take away by way of truth of our standing in Christ, that we who believe are the ones who walk not in condemnation because God put us in Christ and redeemed us also in him and it is us who walk in the spirit and walking in the spirit as those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as those who may stumble and do stumble many times in sin, but even when that happens, we are still walking by the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit drawing and convicting and testifying of our righteousness in Christ, our relationship to God as our Father, testifying of our adoption as sons and children who have an inheritance, and the Holy Spirit also causing our minds to be fixed on the things of above and also exhorting us to a life that is ordered by the knowledge of Christ and the same Holy Spirit coming later in our glorification. 
this God's gospel and it's free. And amen. It's a lot of things. You have to go back and listen because we're going to come back the same way with more nuggets. <laughs> All right, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many wonderful things that we had today. Things that are needful, things concerning our life in Christ, who we are as those who are not laboring under condemnation, as those who have been given the spirit of adoption, who cries in us or causes us to cry, Abba, Father, God is our Father, because we have been given the title of children and sons through the adoption that is in Christ Jesus. We honor you. We thank you for these many wonderful things. We pray for those who came to listen. May you also give them conviction of this truth. We honor you and glorify you. Be with us in our going in and going out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good people. Next week, we shall be back in Romans again. We'll keep working these wonderful things. Please pay attention. These are the things that build your assurance in Christ. Do you just go to church, to go to church, come back with useful things that help you spiritually. Okay? All right. Bye-bye.